This is the Arcus podcast. This is Arcus Knowledge Pills. Welcome everybody to this new episode of the Arcus Knowledge Pills, the podcast of the Arcus Alliance. We took over the torch from Gerhild and Pietro, we, that is me, Josefine from Leipzig University, and with me is my colleague Dorian from Lyon 1 in France. Hi, everybody. So as Josephine said, I'm Dorian from the University of Lyon 1, and today we are really pleased to welcome our new guest, uh, Professor de Munch from the University of Vilnius. He is a professor of social, cultural, cognitive, and evolutionary anthropology. Hi, Victor. Welcome. Thank you. So can we start with a brief introduction of yourself? Could you tell us more about your background, please? Uh, sure. I think you wanted to know why I became an anthropologist to study something that, at least when I was a graduate student, was extremely rare for anthropologists to study, uh, largely because romantic love and, and intimate relationships tend to be something that are not public. And anthropologists tend to be if they go into the field in that traditional way, uh, study people in mostly public arenas rather than in their bedrooms. Uh, <laughs> I met someone, Elisa Sobo, who's at San Diego State University, who studied uh, romantic love. And her study was to me totally fascinating. And then I began to realize you can study romantic love as a subject in anthropology. I think she wasn't the first, but she was one of the Uh, first people to really take love seriously as a research topic. So that spurred me that it was possible to get a job and study love. What intrigued me is Simmel's work on numbers and uh, on small numbers. And so if you have one person, you have theoretically absolute freedom. So if I'm alone at home, I can watch anything I want on TV, I can eat Chinese food or Italian food. But once you have two people, there's constraints on what you can do. So what I became interested in is the dyad and two people together creating a social unit and how being in a social group affects your behavior and the way you think of things because the other person necessarily constrains you. Now, the last part that interested me there is in a dyad. You can study then in its simplest, most elemental form, social behavior and social, the way people compromise with each other. And so I thought by studying love and studying dyadic relationships, you can begin to understand how people care for each other, how people make sacrifices for each other, how people bond and work together. And maybe those elemental units of how people learn how to get along and how to deal with conflict can then be extended uh, to larger things like relationships between nations. So let's get deeper into your research. If we understood correctly, um, your research suggests, or in your research you suggest, there's a link between a global revolution and romantic relationships. Could you tell us more about that? Yes, this is uh, my current research. Um, and I'm just beginning this, so there's so much more for me to read and learn and think about. Uh, but I've been mostly inspired uh, by Eluz, Elena Eluz, uh, who has written a book called The End of Love, which is a very, totally fascinating book and made me think, can love end? Are there social conditions 
in which love can no longer uh, flourish, uh, like a seed that needs water and now you put the seed in the desert. Or have we created a social desert for, for love? Then there's uh, William May, I don't know if I got his last name right, but May wrote a book, Love a History, primarily of love in Europe and the Western world. But he considers love a constant, meaning that, you know, ever since early modern Homo sapiens to the present, love has been a constant and it's been a universal. If it's a universal, it can't just be a cultural construct. So you can't have, uh, in France, love is, love could be constructed in France, but then is it the same as in England? So if it's a cultural construct, it would have be very relative. And clearly there are aspects of love which are not relative. The involuntary nature and the intensity of, of first romantic love. Um, so it seems to have universal kernel or key features. And then of course, culture embellishes on those features and adds its own sense to it. The universality of romantic love doesn't quite mean that it's hardwired and we're like robots. You just press the button and it goes and, and, and it operates. Uh, it, ne it also needs uh, some kind of environmental conditions or some kind of eco niche in which it can grow, in which it can be activated, in which, which allows that feeling to uh, fulfill itself. And perhaps these days, are kind of revolutionary in the sense that in the Western world and East Asia, and even in India and Africa, fertility rates are going down, marriage is getting to be an anachronism to many people. The, the idea of family is also being, it's more problematic now than it used to be. Uh, so that's revolutionary. And one of the purposes of romantic love clearly is to bond, is, it's very cis-heterosexual, at least in its evolutionary form. It's clearly to have a man and a woman bond, have sex, have children, ensure that the male knows that he's the father of the child, uh, because the woman always knows. But romantic love gives the, increases uh, the male's um, assurance that the child is his. And so he will invest more as the story in evolution goes into that child and into the mother who's in a weakened condition, clearly from the time she's pregnant. So romantic love has those purposes, but what happens when people don't want to get married and people don't want children? The function of romantic love in the evolutionary frame uh, it loses that function. So does that also mean an end to love? I think romantic love itself is a universal. So it will always be there. But as Helen Fisher, she has argued that there's a chemistry of love. As we all know, there's a certain chemistry. So there's dopamine and the suppression of serotonin and so forth. Um, but she argues that after five years, you're on your own. So I think romantic love is a cultural universal. But what happens after five years is not a cultural universal. At that time, you're to use her kind of imagery, you're kind of released from the addictive chemicals that keep you in love with the person. And you're on your own. And then culture comes into being. And culture clearly, traditionally has been there to keep couples together uh, through rough times. All couples have rough times. 
so there have to be cultural constraints of some sort, some kind of norms that can keep a couple together when they're unhappy being together. Now there are not many. So there isn't the end of romantic love, but there is an end of the love that occurs after romantic love has kind of spent its force. Uh, so based on what you just said, would you say that love is a constraint to freedom and happiness then? No, I don't think love constrains anything. P people have a natural range on whether they're happy or not happy. Now about how love affects happiness, I think, uh, or freedom for that matter, is a sense of autonomy from the people that I interview, they go back typically to the platonic idea that the other person completes yourself. And, and implied in there is that if you're not in love with someone, and certainly this is also a master cultural narrative, for those who are positive about, you know, monogamous love, then you're not happy until you meet the person who completes you. So happiness is in some ways a cultural construct. And you want that other person, so when you meet that other person, you feel more complete, and then you feel free. Uh, so I do think that romantic love embellishes freedom for people who take the traditional monogamous ideal of what romantic love ultimately entails, that is children and family. I hope that answers it somewhat. Yes, thank you very much. You've already uh, been kind of hinting at it because <laughs> talking about monogamous and the traditional form like of romantic love. Um, mm -hmm. In your research, as we understand it, you explore a new form of relationship, the polyamorous, Mm -hmm. um, how do you think this new kind of love, well, new, is it new um, kind of love, be more adaptive to contemporary times? Well, um, that's a good question. And I, I hope I've made it clear that I think uh, we're on the cliff in some ways, on a revolutionary cliff in which we, and by we, I mean the human population in the world. <laughs> I, I don't mean to be so melodramatic, but I think it's true, where we as homo sapiens have to decide how we're going to, how we're going to figure out how to have sex and how to have children and how, who's going to raise those children and what it means to be family. So Sex and love are, are like two sides of the same coin. You can't really have romantic love without sex. Um, you can't have sex without romantic love. But the purpose of the two being together is to have children and to have a family. And I think that whole kind of concept is problematic these days for most young people and for older people, too. But it's no longer the, the central value of what it means to be alive. So I think that's very important and we're on that precipice where what happens when that model, which has worked, I mean, you got to give that model uh, uh, some applause because it's worked for thousands of years in one way or it doesn't necessarily make people happy, but it has worked to perpetuate the species. If we're, if we're going to get rid of that model, what are the sustainable models that um, articulate with contemporary values that still somehow work to produce children 
and work to produce an environment in which people raise those children. Uh, polyamory has been very successful as a, as a new kind of lifestyle, intimate lifestyle. There was a report that in England, 20% of adults have uh, see, identify as polyamorous, 20%, hard to believe. In the US, an earlier uh, study uh, of 2018 indicated that there were 5%, but that's gone up tr tremendously. And even in Lithuania, where I work and now live, polyamory is alive and well here, and uh, up to 20% of Lithuanians uh, in a recent uh, study uh, have engaged in polyamory. I mean, I mean, polyamory is uh, non is consensual non-monogamy. So polyamory has lots of advantages to it. It, uh, it has greater flexibility. It doesn't have to be cis-heteronormative. And ideally, as one person I interviewed said when I was complaining about having three children and how much time it took to raise three children, he said, wouldn't it be great if you were in a polyamorous relationship and there would be more people to take care of your kids? And yes, I, I changed my whole idea <laughs> of, of polyamory. And so you can see polyamory has lots of benefits to it. I'm sure a lot of our listeners would be happy to have a third parent in their relationship to help <laughs> with the kids. <laughs> yes, of course. Is there anything you would like to add to complete this podcast? I mean, I study romantic love, I think, because... Maybe this is too simplistic a reason, but I do think that love is the answer to almost every problem we have. And I do believe that love allows us to have a transcendental outlook on the world. I think a transcendental outlook on the world is an illusion, but it's a fundamentally necessary illusion for human beings to embrace romantic love to the hilt. Because with romantic love, I think you see people as being better than they are. You see through rose-colored glasses. And of course, later you realize that those rose-colored glasses uh, don't really give you a, a, an accurate representation of who those people are. Then you learn to live with your flaws and whatever other problems you have in your relationship. But I think the transcendental nature of romantic love allows us to see that life has meaning. And all human beings, I think, need meaning in order to live a life that they're satisfied with, a fulfilling life. And I think romantic love is, uh, in many ways, the gateway to, to having meaning in your life. Therefore, I think love is a serious and important topic to research inspiring words <laughs> yeah very nice words i hope so <laughs> to conclude this um well thank you so much victor um, for your time and um all your wisdom and thank you for sharing it and thank you for making me your first uh speaker <laughs> even if it was lousy you'll still remember oh the first one was victor <laughs> <laughs> Have you taken your knowledge pill of the day? Be aware that possible side effects include broader perspectives, deeper insights, and an increase in your personal state of knowledge. This is Arcos Knowledge Pills. To learn more about the Alliance and its activities, please visit arcos-alliance.eu.